Welcome back to Armor on the Air. Today we have a lovely special guest with us. We have Nolan. He's Yay! he's our lab mate. Um, so he's he's very special to us personally, and we're about to convince you why he should be special in your lives as well. Nolan, it's your it's it's your stage. Introduce yourself. Why are you here? Why have we invited you? What's your oh, story? Me? Well, oh, who geez. me? <laughs> wow. Okay, that was very kind. Thank you. Thank you, Dan. It's a pleasure to be here at Armor on the Air. Um, well, I don't know why you invited me. That might have, that was maybe your mistake. I'm just laughing <laughs> we'll because see. you sound like such a radio host right yeah, you now. Do which yeah, you so right. Yeah, going, right. Nolan. In my past life, I was a, a former, I'm a washed up radio DJ. I'm now doing <laughs> podcasts and a little bit of research on the side. So I'll be talking, I guess, a, a bit about that. Um, I am a graduate student at the University of Colorado in Boulder. I work um under the guidance of dr anushri chatterjee and in her lab i study bacterial transcription um particularly a sort of peculiar transcriptional incident that we call transcriptional interference and we'll get to all of that later i just wanted to name drop um ti at the beginning of the episode ti meaning in case anyone was doubting how smart you are Right. If I just throw around enough acronyms, I think I can maybe convince people uh, that this show is supposed to be accessible, Nolan. <laughs> oh yeah. No, uh, sorry, <laughs> it won't be today. I'm just gonna intentionally talk over everyone's head, including my own. We're just gonna read the methods section of your paper yeah. out loud. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's actually what I plan on doing. I have a, a script. <laughs> I'll just be reading from. Well, maybe we can start at the beginning. What is transcriptional interference? Okay, um, I'll even I'll be, I'll take a few steps back from that uh, to better explain it. Maybe for uh, our listeners, it'd be good to remember um, high school biology class where maybe your teacher wrote on the board at some point uh, this kind of little flow diagram, which is that DNA goes to RNA goes to protein. This is called the central dogma. Um, it was I coined by. Knew that name. Yeah, it was coined by Watson and Crick, and it's not of the right use of dogma. Of course it was. <laughs> yeah, they, they messed assholes. up. They, right. <laughs> Can we curse on this podcast? I've honestly yes! made it. I've made Hell it acceptable. Yeah. Okay, we'll just cool. we'll put the little expletive sign next to it, but I just nice. I get fiery <laughs> about some of these issues. Ooh, can we have a disclaimer that this is not suitable for chil- for children in the beginning? I, I just feel like that'd be fun. Like an just alternative bleeped version is available on our website, <laughs> like they do for all the NPR podcasts. The alternative version is just reading from the methods section of your most Yeah. <laughs> it's a little bit drier, but it's all all the good stuff is there. Um, but yeah, so Watson and Crick didn't know what dogma meant. It means like like someone that's dogmatic is like, I, I mean, maybe I'm going to mess up the definition too, but it's like, <laughs> to me, they're like really like ideological and like stubbornly, like believing in a cause. Um, usually that's like a religious connotation. That's not what this is. Uh, the central dogma is not like something you believe in. It's just something that exists. It's also not <laughs> so, religion. This, this is scientifically it, it, this proven is science. information. <laughs> yeah. That, that. I love how you like could just name stuff. Yeah, right. We could, you know, <laughs> should we rename the When you're a Nobel laureate, you can just name things. Exactly. It's, it's true. It's, it's great. Yeah, that power is maybe, I don't know. There should be just a, a I don't know, maybe a naming board so things like this don't happen. 
I don't know. I'm surprised like no one has changed that. I guess people are just like they're smart, so they probably didn't mess up the definition of this word. It's that probably you me who don't learn in high school. <laughs> but yeah, so it's not actually a dogma. It's just a, uh, a phenomenon, a yep. well-documented a scientific facet of biology. Yes. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, of life. We wouldn't mm-hmm. be here without it. But That's right. what it says is that DNA is transcribed into RNA. Some of that RNA, particular messenger RNA, is used to make proteins, which I guess are building blocks of the cell, are what keep us alive. Um, and so this process... They execute the functions. Exactly. They pull the levers. They are the levers. All the levers. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, and so... What there are some funky things that can happen along this whole central dogma process. I mostly focus on uh, the DNA to RNA part, which is called transcription. And what happens in transcription, and this uh, varies a little bit throughout the kingdoms of life. I study bacterial transcription somewhat specifically. So what happens in bacterial transcription is that a protein, which is called RNA polymerase, binds to certain sections of the DNA. They're called promoters. They're nearby genes. So your DNA is just a whole, uh, it's a big, you can think of it as like a big long string of genes, at least in bacteria. It's a little bit, uh, the the genome of bacteria is a little bit simpler than that of um, any higher order eukaryotes or anything like that. Yeah, we focus on bacteria here. This is a microbiology stand show. This is, yes, (laughs) we stand the prokaryotes. (laughs) I forgot. Yeah. <laughs> new t-shirt idea. New t-shirt idea. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Ooh, there's merch. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, it's not yet. It's all in, in progress. Theory. Oh, yeah. Okay. We have some good ideas. <laughs> Mostly Caroline. <laughs> Ooh, cool. I'm very excited about that. Um, I think it's because I think about language in a different way because this is not my first language. So I'm like, hey. <laughs> 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 Eat shit. <laughs> <laughs> That makes, no, ah, sorry. I would wear a TI is beautiful t-shirt. Yeah. <laughs> I think. So among the funky things that can happen as, oh, sorry, I was explaining transcription. So yeah, RNA polymerase binds to the DNA nearby genes and begins to essentially read the DNA and um, go off of the, like basically use DNA as a template to construct a strand of RNA. RNA kind of looks like DNA but it is single-stranded in many cases, can do a lot of different things. And one of the letters, uh, so DNA is composed of A, C, G, and T. Um, RNA is composed of A, C, G, and U. Um, but it is made as a complement to the DNA strand that is uh, that the RNA polymerase is reading. So basically, it's a way to convert a gene into an into an RNA. If that RNA is a messenger RNA, it could be converted into protein. And that's how the central dogma occurs. Now during transcription, um, I should there it's not quite as like I guess neat and tidy as I as I just described it. Um, it doesn't RNA polymerase maybe in your mind's eye is like just kind of traveling, traveling on a road, like a little car on a road, very smooth journey. But the DNA uh, has a has like the genes um, in the genome, I should say, are arranged in uh, different ways. So uh, the genome uh, is composed of 
two different DNA strands and there are genes on both strands, meaning that genes can actually face each other. They can actually point toward each other. And when this happens, um, the, the RNA polymerases, they can be on, well, yeah. So there are um, a couple of different arrangements that genes can take. So I guess this is an audio podcast, so I'm making gestures with my hands, but that's <laughs> not hands. really doing much. <laughs> so, um, well, a gene can be, say, say, uh, imagine a top strand and a bottom strand of DNA. Mm-hmm. A, a gene can be on the top strand, and then another gene can be on the bottom strand right next to it. And so when that happens, they're, because of the way that the DNA is read by RNA polymerase, they're actually pointing in the same direction. Mm-hmm. And when that happens... Uh, the RNA polymerases, when they're finished transcribing or even while they're transcribing, can actually just run into each other. They can sort of like a, like Those a traffic cars. accident. Yeah, that's sort of why I introduced the car analogy. Um, it's like the genome is like a crazy busy highway with absolutely no. Well, there are traffic laws, but they are um, weird and indecipherable. I guess what I'm trying to do ultimately is figure <laughs> out those traffic laws. That, that is. That's a really good analogy, actually. The, the road rules in, mm-hmm. the, in the genome. That is the crux of what I do, what I do here. And it does, this does relate to AMR in some interesting ways Um, because transcriptional interference is just a part of transcriptional regulation as a whole. um, Bacteria regulate their transcription to respond to stress and things and develop sort of adaptive responses. They change the traffic rules. Yeah, they can change the traffic rules. They can close some roads, open some other roads. Ah, make some detours. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, uh, <laughs> detours might be that might be extending the analogy a little bit. I don't know. I was also going to say something about bridges, but I think that's also extending the analogy just a little bit too much. But basically, close some roads, open some other roads, and you can get very different um, cell physiology. Transcription's a powerful thing. Um, this is like a sort of simplified example, but every cell in our genomes effectively has the same DNA, but our, a kidney cell is not a neuron. They have very different functions. And part of that reason um, is My that analogy are... for that is that our cells are a choose-your-own-adventure book. Mm, there you go. Yeah, I like that. They're a choose-your-own-adventure book. So they all have the same instructions, but different readers. Some readers are like, I want to be a kidney. <laughs> Some are like, I want to be, be a, a kidney. Brain. <laughs> you know? <laughs> as a reader is wont to do of course but you're saying Um, bacteria do that too uh yeah i mean like i I don't want to uh i feel like i'm stepping on like developmental biologist toes here because it's i think maybe the difference between neurons and kidneys are probably a lot different in ways that i really can't understand um or don't understand at the moment than a bacteria in favorable growing conditions versus uh, encountering some stress. But the principle is similar in that they can change what genes are transcribed, how much they're transcribed um, in order to respond to a new environment because bacteria can experience just uh, like a lot of different environments. They can encounter some stress. Um, They can, in the form of antibiotics, in the form of heat, in the form of like salinity, anything under the sun, the world's, is trying to kill bacteria and bacteria are are tough as hell because of it and they have a lot of ways to respond and that makes them very uh difficult in 
uh, medical context, of course, and the reason why there's a podcast here talking about that's right. <laughs> talking about that here, talking about <laughs> that AMR. was good. That was that should be our mission statement, honestly, Nolan. Thank you. Yeah. <laughs> the world is tough on bacteria, so bacteria are yeah tough as hell. Um, I think that is a good ring to it. Um, so let's see. Um, but bacteria like they can express um i I talked about this idea of uh, like genetically identical populations um being different you know under stress and things like that but even in the absence of stress you still get what is called phenotypic heterogeneity i'm not gonna explain it what the the manifestation of the genes they're expressing so like yeah. how they change how they look essentially exactly um, and then heterogeneity just means different right <laughs> among a big population there will be differences in identically genetically identical bacteria we touched on this when we were digging into biofilms the episode where i got featured Ooh, nice um, but we were talking about okay. how, yeah, like the biofilm cell, the cells that are at the top and like get a bunch of oxygen and nutrients all the time, look and behave totally differently from the cells that are at the bottom where they don't get nutrients and they don't get access to oxygen. And it's crazy because they all have the same DNA, but you know, this is where it's bridging. Like, is it still a single celled organism or is a biofilm like <laughs> closer to eukaryotic life than we're willing to admit? Yeah, right. Like this is where I feel like millions of years of evolution kick in and make this all seem like science fiction like how do they just know to do that (laughs) how do they just how do the ones at the top know to behave differently than the ones at the bottom but yeah the same thing can occur with planktonic bacteria too so one really really interesting um phenomenon that uh i find fascinating that bacteria take on is that even just in a normal healthy growing population of bacteria there are some that will uh inhibit their own growth and kind of go into defense mode no matter what. On purpose? On purpose. What? Yeah. <laughs> on purpose. Tell me why. Um, so it's because they live in they live in un- at un- unprecedented times. Just <laughs> uncertain. <laughs> it's always bacteria are always living in at unprecedented times. They have to be prepared for all things at all times. They must uh, think a we're sudden such change wimps. in environment. <laughs> yeah. And that leads them to to hedge their bets. This is literally called bet hedging in the in the really? biz yeah in the biz is that another response. like very important scientist who was like i'm gonna name the thing <laughs> even if it doesn't i don't understand the saying or the the word the, sorry what, what did you call it uh bet hedging it's like bet hedging mm-hmm. what does hedging mean i'm sorry yeah though no, that's that's a good question like it's you normally used in like and i guess in like finance a hedge is it's like a safety measure. It's like insurance, basically. Insurance is probably the best way to explain it. Um, but I think so, hedge originally is a botanical term. Is it? Oh, oh yeah. What are they? I think. I think it's I like mean, when a hedge you trim, is definitely botanical. Trim your bushes. It's also called hedging. I guess I don't know what that like where that word comes in to mean like <laughs> what I. Yeah, interesting. I never really considered that. Maybe it was a good question after all. Yeah, no, totally. Definitely is. Okay, okay. So a hedge is a fence or boundary formed by closely growing bushes or shrubs. So it's originally a like botanical agricultural landscaping term that has just been co-opted by the financial sphere. Yeah, yeah. I guess I just wonder like how they. (laughs) I mean, maybe they're like trimming some of the risk off of their bet. Maybe it's like 
I don't, I don't know if that yeah it is... says for a verb to surround or bound with a hedge so you can hedge something in mm. and then number two is like to protect oneself against a loss which i imagine is yeah like okay i guess that yeah that applies risk. like insulating yourself almost from a loss yeah um after that right. etymological side note. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> you come for the AMR, but you stay for the etymology <laughs> on this podcast. <laughs> We're just, Colleen, are you writing all these t-shirt ideas down? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, yeah, bacteria will do the same. So they'll say, I don't know, say there are 100 bacteria growing in a community. There will probably be a lot more than that, but let's say 100. Maybe 100. one or two, one or two will be like you know what all of these everybody here is like growing really rapidly they're dividing really quickly they're relishing the good times i'm oh, gonna kind of hunker down exactly yeah the ones that go against the grain a little bit yeah um, <laughs> like the, the prokaryotic uh, what's it called preppers <laughs> with the prokaryotic what Preppers, like preppers, you know, preppers. preppers. Yes, yeah, doomsday. Yeah, exactly. They're doomsday yeah. preppers. Like they are, um, they're just preparing. They're they're the ones that are like, the world is going to end now. They're the <laughs> or ones tomorrow. Who buy all, now. Of, all of the the toilet paper in this analogy. Yes, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> they're the ones you need to watch out for in the Costco. They you will, will push you aside. One. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> But what they do on a genetic level is, I mean, a, a whole field in itself, and I can't totally speak to that. But one of the ways that they will um, kind of go into defense mode is by slowing their own growth. And when they slow their own growth, they can grow really slowly and lead to, in um, infection contexts, uh, persistent infections. So these are often called persister cells, cells that will, they can survive rounds of antibiotics specifically ones that target growing cells because they're not growing because they're in defense mode um similarly uh in, in a sort of similar um vein some bacteria can also sporulate so like just we have an episode on that oh, it's terrifying okay. yeah yeah so it sounds like you've got that covered <laughs> but yeah that's terrifying and also really cool you know yeah hunker down and survive some a nuclear holocaust mm-hmm space yeah Dirt. oh right space. and space <laughs> oh, <yeah. laughs> um but yeah it's just interesting that like i don't know some bacteria will just elect to like i don't know more or less shoot themselves in the foot <laughs> and like that ends up being advantageous sometimes for their own sake and leads to a clinical challenge in uh in that there are persistent infections um which i think is one of the reasons why it's important to like finish your rounds of antibiotics Yes. Some can hang around. Yes, it is. And they like can. Just because you feel better doesn't mean the infection is over, people. That is true. If, Very important. If you take Talk one thing away from this episode. Or your doctor. Yes. Uh, if you take one thing away from this episode, it should be that. And just the fact that different uh, ice, genetically ice, uh, identical populations of bacteria can act, I don't know, very differently. And that leads to. A lot of interesting behaviors and a lot of, uh, I don't know, I, I nuisances, <laughs> maybe to put it lightly, <laughs> for <laughs> clinicians, researchers. Indeed. It's a problem for engineers as well. And because, like, bacteria 
will will sort of adjust their expression based on environmental cues. So if you're only studying bacterial populations in petri dishes, for example, you are preparing for a totally different phenotype than you would be in like a clinical context, right? Which is why it's not enough to test therapies just in a lab. You actually have to do the clinical trials and actually have to look at how, you know, the disease and the treatment manifest in a living organism. Yeah, that's absolutely right. And I th- you can get some insight into how bacteria express express themselves, express their DNA <laughs> in um, different contexts now. Uh, this is like, a I don't know, relatively recent uh, technology, um, large next next generation sequencing. It's funny because it's always been called next generation sequencing. But I wondered about that. I'm like, what comes after that? <laughs> yeah, right. I don't know. <laughs> is this it? Is like, is when is the next generation? Post next generation, post post right. post modern no. sequencing. <laughs> yeah, it's I have it's to. like the classes, like introductions to something. Like, when are we going to actually learn it? Yeah, right. <laughs> We're just going to be introduced. Exactly. I guess at one point, at some point, it'll be old news. I, I would assume. Um, people will listen to this podcast 20 years from now and be like, ha! these people don't know anything. They're sitting on Mars. We're typing recording on, this like... in 2020 for reference. <laughs> <laughs> the world is a mess. Oh, absolutely. Um, but you can take a glimpse into how bacteria are expressing their genes on a really wide scale using what's called next generation sequencing, particularly a technique called RNA-seq, in which you're measuring the abundance of certain uh, transcripts, which are RNAs, um, at a particular point in time. So if you wanted to know, for instance, how some bacterial population might respond, or this is not limited to bacteria, by the way, people do RNA-seq on human cells, on on yeast, (laughs) on everything under the sun, everything that has a genome and expresses that genome, which is all things, um, then you can do RNA-seq on it. But in the context of bacteria, it might be useful to say like, all right, well, in under, you know, normal, really conditions where bacteria is thriving, this is what their transcriptome, what the amount of RNA in the cell um, looks like. And then maybe if we add a stress, maybe we add an antibiotic or we crank up the heat, Mm. This is what they'll do. And that and so changes then the over theory time. Is, the theory is, like, linking this back to central dogma is, like, it's really hard to measure from the first step how much something would be expressed, right, from, like, the DNA point of view, because the amount of DNA in the cell doesn't fluctuate. But if you go to the second step, right, the RNA, the amounts of RNA tell you, like, how much something is being expressed. And it isn't really, like, on or off. It's usually, like, on for a certain amount of time and then off or on at a controlled rate, right? The traffic laws that we were talking about earlier. Mm-hmm. So by measuring these relative values, we have more information about how much something is expressed. But it's not 100%, right? Because then there's other proteins that can break down RNA before they become protein. So it's not a guarantee that the amount of RNA is the amount of protein or the full amount of expression, right? Because it's only halfway along the, the, the dogma. <laughs> Yeah, that's absolutely right. Yeah, you're another, I guess, I don't know, side road in the like kind of linear central dogma is, yeah, their RNA like only exists in the cell for a certain amount of time. There's like sort of a program degradation as a certain half-life, um, which, yeah, definitely relates to how much of it is expressed. And these things are all tightly regulated and have been 
really well, uh, really well established over millions of years of evolution. So it's definitely a daunting task for researchers to get in under the hood and figure out why <laughs> things work the way they do. Bold of us to assume that we could understand yeah. millions of years of evolution. Yeah, the hubris of the humankind is on display <laughs> here. <laughs> definitely. Yeah, but bacteria, you know, they're wacky. Yeah. Um, if you wanted Do you to have Sorry, go ahead. No, no, go ahead. Do you have an example of how you have used transcriptional interference to stop something happening in bacteria? Yeah, so I mean my examples are a little bit more boring. I can give I can give well I can talk about what I have done and I can also talk about an example of how transcriptional interference that again as a reminder is a a collision of RNA polymerases as they are transcribing DNA. Um, I can give an example of how that's used, how bacteria use it uh, for kind of what I was talking about earlier, sort of a, a bet hedging persister response. Yes. So what I do is a little bit more on the engineering side, at least so far. Um, that's what's kind of interesting about doing fundamental research is that you can learn something about how so something fundamental to bacteria, the fact that they, you know, regulate their own transcription in this way, but you can also apply it to the field of synthetic biology and bioengineering, which I don't know if you've covered it on the show before, but in a really simplified nutshell is like trying to engineer organisms to do useful things for us. And by engineer organisms, That was our Shane episode. I mean, that was the episode about playing God. <laughs> yes, Exactly. It's fun to play God <laughs> and <laughs> set these <laughs> polymerases on a collision course. Destructive God. <laughs> um, <laughs> anyway, <laughs> so it's an old um, testament, God. <laughs> right? <laughs> exactly. Yeah, 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 the evil one. <laughs> no one is forgiven. <laughs> yeah. So, what you can use um, transcriptional interference for in an engineering context is to downregulate the expression of a gene. So if you have an RNA polymerase, is again, is hard without visuals, but uh, imagine you have a gene on this top strand of, of DNA. DNA, remember, is double-stranded. If you just imagine two parallel lines in, in your mind's eye, that'll do. You have a gene on this top strand. It's being transcribed by RNA polymerase. If you want to downregulate expression of that gene, one way to do it is to send an RNA polymerase toward it on the other strand in a head-on collision. Um, and I should add that even though they're on two different strands, they can uh, interact and will effectively not allow each other to pass, at least in bacteria. And when that happens, basically transcription is interrupted and not much of that gene, not as much of that gene is produced. And so you can reliably down-regulate genes. And from there, it, that effectively um, acts as a, a switch. If you're able to turn on the firing of those colliding RNA polymerases, um, then you've effectively created a switch where you can turn off and on that gene of interest. And that's useful for, say, metabolic engineering. If you, the, the, the engineering of the uh, metabolism to produce um, interesting or valuable chemicals or proteins or things of that nature. Um, one of the, I guess, main uh, applications of bioengineering and synthetic biology 
uh, that could be interesting if you want to downregulate the expression of some some protein that you need you need like a little bit of maybe to make something else that you need a little bit of. There's like maybe a chain of reactions, but mm-hmm. if it's around for too long, then it could be harmful to the cell. So it's a big like optimization problem. Um, and if you have a have a switch that you can reliably turn on and off, it gives you just more control over your organism. Goes into the engineering of that organism, and so that's one way you can use this phenomenon of transcriptional interference to uh, for for the greater good, <laughs> I guess. <laughs> can you I, use it therapeutically mm-hmm. though? Like, suppose I have an infection on my arm. Mm-hmm. We can get that bacteria, sequence it, and we identify. Um, like what gene makes it particularly virulent and then we could figure out what gene is like opposite to that can we address that on the spot with a therapy that we develop or is that too far-fetched right now yeah that i mean that is definitely uh possible i i don't believe that anybody has done that but i think that's something worth pursuing um i think that's a good way to like almost intervene in yeah um in a in a genome it's it's advantageous to other ways of downregulating genes i should say um like using uh crispr cas9 systems um say so if we want to we want to bring what's that in. crispr <laughs> can be yeah I don't know. <laughs> so um it's a gene editing technique crispr cas9 is a gene editing technique uh i i am no crispr expert so i'll just keep it i'll keep it simple it's uh, the analogy that a lot of folks use and one that i like is like a pair of guided molecular scissors mm-hmm. um so the crisper part is is uh what is effectively the guide it'll take this enzyme cas9 the scissors to a particular mm-hmm. spot on the dna <laughs> you can you can cut you can edit things like that um what some people figured out back in the early days of crisper being like seven years ago is that instead of having scissors you can like engineer the enzyme cas9 and other cas proteins to not be scissors but to just be like uh i don't know a brick or something uh just some (laughs) heavy uh, object that will just sit on the dna so cas9 would sit on the dna and cut but this alternative version called decas9 deactivated cas9 just sits Mm -hmm. and that's useful because you don't actually edit the genome but you block transcription Mm -hmm. um for logistical reasons and like delivery reasons potentially i mean this is not to say that like crispr cas9 is not a useful technology not at all what i'm saying but um (laughs) there are the ways like cellular resource advantages to using a cell's like native system to Mm -hmm. just fire up polymerase add another polymerase and just say like down regulate um However, one field is much further along than the other, I should say. <laughs> it's just that in theory, that is a, a reason why you might uh, consider using an approach like transcriptional interference. Right. But that, that sort of like opens up avenues for alternative therapeutics for, for infection. You know, when, when they inevitably become resistant to all of our, all of our current drugs. <laughs> exactly. It's, yeah, if you can target specific genes and downregulate their transcription in any way, I think that's a great tool. TI is just one of the ways to get there. Um, But bacteria also use TI in interesting ways. Like, it seems like a really destructive phenomenon. It seems like an accident. That's, Mm -hmm. like, a big question in the field. Like, is this just a tolerated phenomenon that just happens because of the way transcription is? Um, I don't know. Millions of years of evolution, like, with this going on, you feel like there could be ways to get rid of it. I don't know. Uh, I'm sure that's definitely debatable. But 
there are documented examples of transcriptional interference being useful um, for creating interesting cellular behaviors, including ones that are, uh, I guess, improve um, the virulence of a pathogen. Uh, the example that I'm thinking of uh, came out of a paper that was came out maybe like a year and a half ago. This group in Spain realized that um, Staph aureus, the bug behind MRSA when it's mm -hmm. methyl methicillin resistant, uses um, transcriptional interference to downregulate this gene that's involved in a, a biosynthesis pathway. The details of it aren't like terribly important, and I honestly don't remember them all that well. <laughs> but <laughs> what is important is that the downregulation down of this gene by TI uh, created it, like a phenotype that was really slow growing um, and more resistant to antibiotics. Kind of like what I described earlier. It's a bet hedging response. Mm -hmm. It's it was one of the ways um, TI in this case was a way for this bacterium to hedge its own bets and create a subpopulation that is slow growing. Um, the idea being there's some, so I don't know, I forget what the protein is called that TI was down regulating. Let's call it protein A. Um, there's some level of protein A at which the cell is thriving. There's some level below which it is not thriving, but mm -hmm. maybe it's more resistant to antibiotics. And so in some, because of this, uh, concept of phenotypic heterogeneity we talked about earlier things happening on the expression level um, some fraction of this staff population was uh, you know like thriving and doing well and then the other the, the I guess we can call them a TI affected um, half was or less than half probably it was like a, a smaller fraction um, was hampered and formed like on, if you looked on a petri dish when it was streaked out, it formed these really small colonies called small colony variants. Um, They're really itty bitty. I've seen them. They're like, mm -hmm. I mean, if you if you look at a plate of bacteria, it just looks like a bunch of spots and splotches. Um, and then these small colony variants are just like this little needle point of a spot instead of it being like this big, like, like when you get mold on your food, right? It gets all mm -hmm. spotty. These are just like itty bitty little like dots, like as super small as they could be and still have you like really notice them. Mm -hmm. They look like that. Exactly. And they look like that because at least in part because they grow slowly mm -hmm. and they, they don't grow as well. I always get um, freaked out when I find those in my plates in the lab. I'm just oh, like, yeah. oh, God, <laughs> this wasn't supposed to be resistant. Says, <laughs> I've made <yeah>. a monster. <laughs> oh, what have I done? <laughs> Yeah, I've definitely had, <laughs> I've definitely had plates that were just like full of an antibiotic, and then like had something grow on them. I know. I'm like, what are to. you? <laughs> or I've yeah, I've like had a, like doing transformations. I've had like a colony grow on a plate that's just full of canamycin. Mm -hmm. I'm thinking like, oh cool, it took up my plasmid that has canamycin, and then I go to extract the plasmid, and there was no plasmid. There was no <laughs> it was never there. <laughs> it was, and it's like. What did I just do? So our <laughs> lab, everything. like, legally, we're only allowed to have um, bacterial strains that are resistant uh, if they are still treatable by at least one thing. So mm. I wonder how many, like, biosafety level four monsters we've created just, in our yeah. lab just by pure <laughs> yeah, like, oh, gosh. What can you do? It's evolution. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> this we're is like great PR. Not to be biosafety yeah. level two. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, we think. <laughs> we hope. That's reassuring, right? <laughs> yeah. 
no, I mean it. It is, but <laughs> for for PR purposes. For P- right, right, right. <laughs> okay. Yeah, but- so as we as we start our our closing thoughts here, mm-hmm. Nolan, I love asking all of our all of our microbiology visitors this question: Do you have a favorite bacterium? Ooh. Okay. Is it uh, is it cliche to say that it's E. coli K twelve? Has anybody said that yet? No, because you know I actually remember when we were talking about how your spirit microbe oh, is spirit. E. coli K twelve. That's true. I well, for consistency's sake, as I am on the record as saying my spirit <laughs> microbe is E. coli K twelve, I can't go back on that now. But I also think that E. coli K twelve, which is um, for those uninitiated listeners it is like the one of the biggest or like it's like most widely used lab strains of e coli so it can't make you sick yeah it can't make you sick it's been engineered in a way that it can't make you sick but it has contributed i think enormously to biology and our understanding the first full genome we had um that's a good sure. question. Like, it, I'm sure it was. We I'm sure it was every up there. Thing. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I could live Google it. <laughs> that'd be something. <laughs> that'd be interesting to people just. Um, no, but I, I'm sure it was up there. We have a really good understanding of mm-hmm. its biology, and understanding its biology has led us to understand the biology of other bacteria. Also, um, engineering-wise, it's great. Like It was central to the development of recombinant DNA technology and our ability to... Well, essentially, it's our ability to use bugs like E. coli, like yeast, um, to make uh, proteins and chemicals that are useful. It started in um, Genentech, which is a biotech company in California, trying to figure out how to make insulin um, in bacteria. And so they used E. coli. They used E. coli K12. Um, to do that and to figure all of that out. And that's why we primarily make insulin and E. coli and yeast these days. And we don't get them from pigs. Pig pancreases. Like, we <laughs> we made it vegan. So we made it vegan. Yeah. <laughs> so for many reasons, E. coli K12 is a great bug. But it's also like a basic answer. So there that's are okay. other cool. Yeah. We have, we've, we, I think we've gotten like all of the other ones from our other our other guests so it's no, not okay. basic in that it's only it's been said okay. once I mean, nice it's a, like, <laughs> that's that's good that's a relief um but you know there are that's not to say there aren't other cool bugs out there there True. are plenty of cool bugs that's the thing yeah we definitely do like a zoom in on cool bugs every now and then i like yes. those episodes yes yeah Maybe we should have like a, an episode where we just invited people with different favorite bacteria. And they argue. And they <laughs> argue. just have them like, actually, yeah. why this is oh, a that's great, a great idea. I actually love that. I'm here um, representing Bacillus subtilis. It can't represent itself. Yeah. <laughs> I give voice to the yeah. <laughs> It's a noble thing that we do. Yeah. <laughs> really. The thing is, I had, a, I had a, an old colleague at my old work who were like the queen of this certain uh, bacteria in Denmark. She was just on every uh, publication that was surrounding this bacteria. And then I asked her this question and I thought she would just answer this bacteria because Mm. like it's all of her research. And she's like, yeah, but I don't really like it. I mean, it makes people sick. (laughs) (laughs) I was like, "Uh, 
Good point, I guess. It's true. <laughs> I guess know thy enemy. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm actually very interested in how bacteria make people sick. That's like my favorite area of microbiology. It's mm. like the pathophysiology, right? Right. Oh, that that is yeah that is something that is out of my wheelhouse but that is like very very interesting i like that because you know i really like the the sorry no no go ahead go ahead oh, no. okay um i really like the uh, the question about when a bacteria makes you sick and when it doesn't mm. because you have a lot of bacteria growing all <laughs> over you and mostly they don't make you sick but sometimes <laughs> they do yeah <laughs> like why? Oh, that's right. Yeah. All this and more on yeah. Arbor on the Air. Future episodes. <laughs> yeah. We still have a lot. We haven't totally figured out bacteria yet, so I guess there will be more episodes mm-hmm. of this podcast. Normally, at the end, I also ask our guests to like espouse wisdom about how people <laughs> can can prevent antibiotic resistance and and the you know all of the scary things that we addressed. Like, how do you actually deal with that? Um, but you kind of already did. You were basically like, finish your antibiotic course. And I think oh, that's yeah. probably the most prudent piece of advice from from this episode. Yes. Did yeah. you have anything else you wanted to add? Um, I guess that's the main thing. Uh, you know, just appreciate uh, bac- our bacterial friends for what they are. <laughs> um, they Bacteria, I feel like, have a bad rep. Like E. coli. When I tell people I work with E. coli, everyone's like, Chipotle lettuce. Which, you know, understandably. <laughs> yeah. Like, yeah. Ew. And that's the funny thing, especially about E. coli, because every time people hear, oh, there was found traces uh-huh. of E. coli, E. coli often isn't really the problem. The problem is where E. coli come from and what other bacteria that probably right. are there too. That's true. E. Yeah, and I mean, like, there are, you know, a couple bad apple E. coli strains that do that do damage, but there's also a lot of there's a lot of good, and I just want to use my platform <laughs> <laughs> to speak I on behalf it. of E. coli. I love it. So, Nolan, I've never mm-hmm. done this before, but I wondered, mm-hmm. with your sultry radio host voice, oh, do wow. you want to <laughs> give our closing remarks? I've sent them to you in the chat. I would love to. Yeah. <laughs> New Let's tradition. Do it. Quick pregnant pause while I pull up the <laughs> closing remarks. Okay. <laughs> we put out podcasts every week to teach you all about the societal implications of microbiology and health. Keep up with us wherever you get your podcasts. Keep up with us on social media at CU Armor. CU underscore Armor, I should say. Wait, there's an exclamation point at the end of that sentence. That's not part of the... At. that's not part of your username right no your it handle. is not okay <laughs> there okay so it's at cu letters underscore armor a r m o r no exclamation point okay <laughs> that was for me to uh that was from that, was, uh, for that you exclamation point was there for me um <laughs> i i messed up <laughs> anyway also we also meet every tuesday at 2 30 mountain daylight time to do this but with no filter and you're welcome to join us. Email or DM us for the Zoom link. That email address, armor at colorado.edu. Armor spelled the, not the British way also. <laughs> it's A-R-M-O-R. There's no U in there. Um, also, if your community has unique needs, we encourage you to start your own chapter of Armor. To learn more, visit our website at arclabs, A-R-C-L-A-B-S dot org slash armor. Again, no Thank U. you, Nolan. You were an excellent guest. We're so happy to have you. I, it was an honor to be here. It was really fun. 
Let's do this again sometime. Yeah, we'll we'll have you back for the you bacteria. Can come on our, uh, yes, bacteria. Yeah. I will defend E. coli until I until I run out of words. I don't know. I, <laughs> I I'm here for them. I love it. Well, Nolan, thank you again. Thank you, our listeners, for tuning in, and we'll see you all next week. See you then. Bye.